Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 50, Richard and the Defence of the Empire. So this is formally my 50th episode. Actually it's the 54th, but it does set the number 50. So I thought I'd have some kind of special episode, a coruscating and scintillating episode full of wit and light and insight. But then I decided to do this instead. This week's book recommendation is Medieval Lives by Terry Jones. You know, the ex-Python bloke. The great thing about this, and there's also a DVD of the BBC programme, by the way, is his enormous enthusiasm. Terry simply loves everything medieval, as you'll have seen if you followed up the YouTube links to the crusade last week. Medieval Lives is a really good way to find out about how medieval men and women really lived. And of course, it's funny at the same time. So our job now is to look at the rest of Richard's reign, 1194 to 1199. And this week we'll look at Richard's administration and start off looking at his defence of the empire against Philip. And then, plot spoiler alert, next week he's going to die. Between March and May 1194 then, Richard spent his second and last visit in England. After he'd cleared out the last bits of revolt against his authority by John, Richard had some admin to carry out so he called a four-day Great Council, or Magnum Concilium. Interestingly, the council was held in Nottingham, and before it started, Richard took a day trip to admire the local Sherwood Forest. Was this the time when he turned into Sean Connery and attended Kevin's wedding? More importantly, the council looked at the not unrelated problem of the best possible administration of the realm, and raising money, of course. Not unrelated, because Richard hit on the happy expedient of replacing all the sheriffs and, in normal manner, charging the new men for their offices. If you were a sheriff, this would have been a little irritating, 
there had been no indication in 1189 that when they'd last had to pay for their offices, that their payment had in any way been a subscription rather than a one-off fee. But Richard calmly informed them that he'd just forgotten to mention that bit, and did they want the office or not? But as for 1189, do not assume that this means that we're back in the Richard had no interest in administration territory. It's quite clear that Richard made sure the choices of men were sound, as well as raising money. The conference carried out the job of starting legal proceedings against the rebels John and Hugh of Nolland. Now, here's a new word to be introduced to the Not Specifically About History of England podcast, S-cheat. It's a word we'll get to hear a lot more of, and I'm not sure how common it is and how many people know it. So, S-cheating is the process of taking the land of treasonous subjects. And we'll get to hear it a fair bit as we get stuck into the Plantagenets, who frankly find it difficult to get through a weekend without having done a bit of this cheating. The estates of the pair were so huge that two men were appointed to manage the whole process. Then on the third day, it's money and troops for the coming war. The general flavour of the discussion about money and the contrast with later centuries I think is striking. While Richard is alive, we get to hear plenty about how money was raised but there's really quite little about how hard it was to make do. After John chucks away the ancient empire, the history of England is littered with the language of English kings not having enough money for their ambitions or getting into horrible debt. The ancient emperors, if I can coin a phrase, really were loaded. So here's a country that has been forced to fork out a king's ransom, if you'll pardon the pun, but extra taxation now goes right ahead. A land tax or carriage at two shillings a hide was imposed and a scootage imposed. Just to remind you, scootage, that's the tax knights pay instead of going to fight. But much more money came from the various special deals that Richard does. The Jews make a contribution. Richard gets payment from towns in exchange for privileges. The Cistercians had to make a special payment, that sort of thing. So as normal, it's the business of squeezing the feudal Jews that does the best job. But there was one other major money-raising innovation, which was the introduction of a royal customs system. Specifically, a duty levied on all overseas trade at one-tenth. The whole business of collecting this money also meant that a system of port management was set up, and it's another illustration of the fact that Richard was far from being a simple warrior. He understood that harnessing economic strength was an essential part of military success. During this year, then, the English crown raises about £25,000 which is two and a half times the income from the previous year. So there is some justice for the view that Richard was a king keen on extorting money and that he sucked his country dry to pay for his crusade and mindless wars. At best, the accusation is a little harsh. After Richard's death, we'll see that John raises the royal revenue significantly further than Richard managed to do. So the average revenue from England under John is about £60,000, as opposed to that one-off year of £25,000 under Richard. So, in fact, Richard should really have been sucking a lot harder. Richard then, rather impatiently, allowed himself to be persuaded by the council that he should let people see that he was back and in control by having a bit of a crown-wearing. You may remember these things from the time of William the Conqueror, who was most keen on the whole thing. But since the time of Stephen, they'd fallen out of fashion. They weren't really Henry II's gig. Richard was also eager to get on with it and get his hands round Philip's scrawny neck. But the barons felt it was important. So, on the 17th of April, Richard took a walk from Winchester Castle to join his mum at Winchester Cathedral, wearing the full regalia, accompanied by the King of Scots. 
Berengario wasn't there, but I do hope the weather was nice for his walk. With the ceremony out of the way, Richard hightailed it down to Portsmouth to join his army. I think this is a good time to introduce a chap called Mercadier. Mercadier was a mercenary captain. He'd been just another leader of the bands of vicious routiers in the south of France, but Richard picked him up, and he'd become Richard's constant companion since 1184. He'd be with Richard and his right-hand military man right up until his death. Mercadier had gone to the Holy Land with Richard, but came home at the same time as Philip to look after Richard's military interests while he was still away. Mercadier said, I fought for him strenuously and loyally. I never opposed his will, but was prompt in obedience to his orders, and Richard bigged him up in his letters. As so often, the years have obscured many of the details, but it's clear enough that here was an important relationship to Richard, and that Mercadier played a key role in the coming war. It's rather telling of the difference between Richard and John that Mercadier would meet his death under John, assassinated by a fellow mercenary captain in John's army. Richard was forced to kick his heels in Portsmouth, held back by adverse winds, and while he was waiting around, the birth of a major military port was conceived and started. Portsmouth was even at this time a major jumping-off point for the continent. Under Richard, it would become a focal point of royal power and the conduit for the armies and treasure going to fight the battles in France. At last, on the 12th of May, 100 ships left Portsmouth for Barfleur, and the war was on. There are really two parts to the remainder of Richard's story. There's the story of how England was governed under his reign, and then there's the war. So let's do the government one first, shall we? And then we can end the episode in a welter of blood, pain and despair. Which is, after all, what we're here for. Richard's reign was notable for the career of a man called Hubert Walter, a man who seems to genuinely and even indecently excite historians. He was lucky enough to have the Justicia of England under Henry II, Ranulph Glanville, as his uncle, a stroke of luck that set him on the ladder of advancement by getting him the job at the Exchequer. But the rest was all talent, and another example of the chances that existed to rise through the ranks. He came to Richard via the church as the Dean of York, and in 1189 was made Bishop of Salisbury. He was on crusade with Richard and stayed on after Richard left, and entered Jerusalem, met Saladin, and managed to persuade him to allow a small group of Latin monks to run church services there. He then brought the army home, but diverted to find Richard once he realised he'd been caught hostage. It was through this service in the Holy Land and his role in raising the ransom that Hubert made his reputation with the king. And duly, in 1193, he was appointed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1194, he was made Justicia of England, and then, in 1195, he was made a papal legate, which pretty much gave him the full hand, and as much authority as any man could wish for. As far as Richard was concerned, Hubert's job was to maintain a peaceful country and raise money and troops so he could give Philip the royal kicking he so royally deserved. And Hubert was good at that. Hubert is part of the process of the gradual extension and improvement of royal justice and administration, and essentially he took Henry II's innovations and he built on them. So he reinstituted the general heir, i.e. the circuit of royal justices moving around the countryside, delivering royal justice and common English law. He made sure that what they did was better defined, and seems to have employed people mainly on merit, within the limits of medieval times, of course. 
He's also probably the man who created the origins of two mainstays of the English justice system, Justices of the Peace and the Coroner. So, in his Articles of the Air in 1194, here's a line. Let there be chosen in each shire three knights and one clerk to be keepers of the pleas of the crown. And so in this line apparently we see the genesis of the coroner. It sounds a bit obscure to me but hey. In 1195 he issued his edict for the keeping of the peace and this demanded that all men over 15 should take an oath before a local knight that they would keep the peace. Now we think that these keepers of the king's peace will become the system of justices of the peace by the end of the 14th century. Hubert's administration continued a trend that had been beginning under Henry, namely the reliance of the local knight as the mainstay of government. The distinction remains between the landed knight and the household knight, so let me cast your minds back to William the Marshal, and his struggle as a landless knight amongst many others. But now there's another distinction as well, because now there's a distinction between knightly status and knightly tenure. What I mean by this hideously obscure phrase is this. Knights were meant to be warriors, and that's their origin. But there have been almost no roving around the English countryside, ravaging and raping and all the rest of it for quite a while now. And Richard's battles with Philip were pretty recent. So there are now quite a few knights who held their land as though they were a knight, but had absolutely no interest in fighting whatsoever. They'd prefer slippers, a good evening in with a tankard of port, an early night with a wife, that sort of thing. So, although they held land in fief and owed knight service, they made jolly sure they didn't get dubbed as a knight. And they took the scootage approach to war and stayed at home with their metaphorical slippers. But the state wasn't letting them get away with this completely and it began to give them a role in local administration instead of all that fighting. And they were ideal for this purpose since their land and their status brought with it local authority the kind of authority needed to make things happen. So they formed the Grand Assizes, i.e. the Periodic Criminal Court for Big Land Cases. The Royal Justices used them to check people who said they couldn't attend courts. They sat on juries, they viewed boundaries, assigned dowers. In the 13th century, these are the guys who would become the Justice of the Peace and the Coroners. To an extent, this is a movement that affects all of the 15% of people who were freemen. Again, they sat on jurors and inquirers. So we've begun to move quietly but subtly back to a wider community of the realm, where the king and all his freemen worked together to govern the kingdom, of which more in John's reign and, of course, in his son's reign. Hubert's stint as justicia lasted only five years. The church in general, from the Pope down, disagreed with the concept of a churchman holding a worldly public office, and eventually the pressure got to him, and he resigned in 1198. But don't worry, Hubert will still be around in the form of the Archbishop of Canterbury. But his job as Justicia was taken by a man called Geoffrey Fitzpeter. Now, two other domestic snippets before we get to the violence and the mayhem. The first relates to the towns. Henry had worked really hard to make sure that towns didn't get above themselves. In the great commercial centres on the continent, Lombardy, France, the Low Countries... Citizens had got together and formed a commune, sworn to resist oppression and obtain liberties from the local lords. This didn't float Henry's boat. He'd squashed any movements that came up, like those in Gloucester and York. 
And England never quite gets to the level that the continental centres achieve, but under Richard and John there is a bit of a lurch forward, helped by these periods of domestic chaos. So, in 1191, London, for example, used John's argument with William Longchamp to set up a municipal government under the head of a mayor, a title that at the time was very much alien to England. John himself took an oath to the commune, and by 1216, more than a dozen towns had a commune and a mayor. Let's not imagine, therefore, that this was a hotbed of democracy, though. The good burghers would have substituted a local oligarchy for the tyranny of a king, but nonetheless, there was that element of self-determination. The other thing I was going to mention was also deeply unpopular to Henry, namely the tournament. Now, as long ago as the 12th century, the French were eagerly devoting a considerable portion of their time, energy and gross domestic product telling the English about French superiority. Out on crusade, they'd been keen to tell the English that their appalling lack of internal warring and, frankly, Neanderthal lack of trendy tournaments made them a bunch of northern softies. And get this, as crude and lacking in skill. The English, crude and lacking in skill, I ask you. Well, there's a theme they've come back to more than once. But something must have rung true in Richard's mind. And after all, he was basically French. You'll remember that Henry had banned all tournaments on his lands. True enough, his sons had been rotten role models, since one of them, the young king, had become a famous participant and another, Geoffrey, had died in one. So in 1194, Richard decided that the lack of skill in his knights would be helped by a spot of practice, and he therefore set up a series of public tournaments. Five places were designated, the areas around Salisbury, Warwick, Brackley, Stamford and Tickhill and the fees were set. The locations are interesting. Those of you on top of your English geography will note that Nottingham is the furthest north of these. So, not quite sure what was going on north of the Humber, and why those guys apparently didn't need any tournaments, but any theories are welcome. So, let's get back to Richard and his last series of campaigns. Basically, we're talking two major wars here, 1194-6, and 1197-8, but the whole series is broken into a confusing mass of truces and period of activity. So in 1194, he arrived in Normandy to an enthusiastic reception. The strategic situation he faced wasn't great. Philip had made serious inroads, and we need a map here to help, so you'll be unsurprised to learn that there is a map on the website, thehistoryofengland.com, thanks Chris. Many Norman marcher lords had come over to Philip's side, So now he held a lot of Normandy. Most of the land east of the Seine, stretching all the way to the coast, was his. Philip held key alliances that in the past the Dukes of Normandy had been very careful to maintain, with Baldwin of Flanders and with the Count of Boulogne, both to the north of Normandy. As Count of Mortain, John himself brought much of the southwest of Normandy as well. The key fortress of Gisors in the Vexin had been taken by treachery in 1193, and although he'd been beaten off twice, Philip was still in easy striking distances of Rouen. Further south, in Touraine and Berry, Philip had acquired key castles. Aquitaine was in serious trouble, with the counts of Angoulême and Parigueux and others in open revolt. In addition, Philip was now far richer than any previous French king. He had acquired lands in Artois, for example, and overall some have argued that his income may have been even bigger than Richard's. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Philip was an energetic chap, and he was working away hard to win as much as possible before Richard arrived over in Normandy. And in May 1194, he rocked up to Vernoy, another strategically placed castle. The defenders were brimming with confidence, unaware that Richard was stuck at Portsmouth with contrary winds. They indulged in a little light mockery at Philip's expense. They did the cabbaging thing with the drawbridge, leaving it open, then pulling it up at the last moment. You know, like when you offer your children a chip, then take it away at the last minute and eat it in front of them. Fun stuff. They drew a mocking picture of Philip with a mace at the bottom of the drawbridge so that he could look at himself. They were having less fun when Philip brought part of the wall down and there was no sign of Richard. Richard was doing his best. By the 21st of May he was 20 kilometres away when his camp had a visitor, namely his brother John. Now, I'm not sure what I would have done, but Richard's response was one of casual contempt. He said, Don't be afraid, John, you're a child! By the way, John was 27, so I guess Richard is thinking brain, maturity of a child, that sort of thing. Anyway, onward. You've got into bad company, and it is those who have led you astray that will be punished. So, total whitewash. The Angevin Empire was to suffer from Richard's generosity, but in the short term, you can't help thinking that brotherly love and military necessity in this case coincided, and it made a good decision. After all, it brought all the southwest of Normandy back into Richard's control. By the 28th of May, Philip's situation wasn't so great. The garrison was still there, and Richard was finally approaching. Philip was now feeling vicious and a bit grumpy about John's desertion. So he took part of his army away from Vernoy and went and sacked John's town of Evreux. And it's difficult to avoid feeling that John had let Philip down every bit as much as he'd let Richard down. But meanwhile, the army Philip had left in front of Vernoy ran away, leaving the siege train there for Richard to take. So, then we get a bit of castle besieging on both sides, with Richard's army winning the count 3-1. to one. I say his army because Richard himself had decided that the key objective lay further south in Touraine and Aquitaine. He arranged for Sancho, his father-in-law, to send an army north from Navarre, and they met at Loche, and on the 13th of June, Richard took the place by storm. He then moved further south into the Loire Valley to Vendôme, to which he laid siege. Basically, Richard is seeking to regain control of the Loire Valley, the key to Anjou, Maine and Touraine. Philip was seriously alarmed at this point and had already come down with his main army. When his scouts told him that they'd found the English army, Philip announced that he'd attack in the morning. The following morning found him attacking in the opposite direction to where his enemy was, otherwise known as retreating. Richard pushed his army afterwards and was able to seriously maul Philip's rearguard at Freteval, capturing the baggage train, including all the royal archives. We can't really claim that Freteval was anything more than a skirmish, but in point of fact, it gave Richard enormous freedom of action further south in Aquitaine. And he put this to good use. 
The Count of Angoulême was shattered when Richard captured Angoulême itself in a single day. So down south things were going well. But Philip's priority was Normandy, and would remain so throughout the following years of struggle. This was the key for France, so close to Paris itself. The English forces there were controlled by the Earl of Arundel and John himself, and they were besieging the frontier castle of Vaudreuil. But a lightning-quick march north by Philip caught them on the hop, and most of John's infantry was captured and siege train destroyed. Yeah, go John! So, we'd had three months of pretty intense fighting, when at the end of July, Richard and Philip agreed a truce, to last until November 1195. The truce, like all of these truces, basically called a halt on the basis of what each side held at that point. And although there was some mooting of ideas about how a longer peace might be achieved, really, there was little future in those discussions at this point. This was just basically an opportunity to draw breath. But somehow, between 1194 and November 1195, war is carried on, but just at a much lower level, or by other means, or in such a way as to not cause a breach big enough to start the fighting off again wholesale. The period's a bit obscure, but it looks as though Mercadier and his mercenaries carried out a very successful campaign in Berry and the Auvergne in the southwest, capturing the Count of Auvergne as well as all his territory. And this is something of a major coup. Why it doesn't cause a resumption of the war is not clear, though the event is also pretty difficult to date. Meanwhile, plenty of jockeying was going on to build up alliances. Richard by this time was an ally of the Holy Roman Emperor, despite the little imprisonment episode, and he used Henry to exert pressure on Philip. Richard also made the most of his internal alliances. The Lusignan family, for example, was given the hand in marriage of the heiress to the county of Ur in Normandy. Now, this was one of the areas that had been taken by Philip. We've seen this approach before, haven't we? Look, thanks for your help. Here's a nice bit of land. Oh, by the way, did I mention that someone else thinks that it's theirs? Military activity of a kind went on throughout the truce. One tactic involved putting pressure on the French castles. So let's take the example of Vaudreuil, where John had been beaten. Since capturing it had proved too tough, Richard now simply took control of the land around the castle by moving troops into the area. Essentially, the fortress became a waste of time for Philip. The whole point of a fortress is to be able to control the area around it. As the end of the truce approached, Richard and Philip started talks about Vaudreuil. It turns out, though, that this was something of a ploy and a delaying tactic, since as they sat there chatting... The French engineers completed mining work and a wall came crashing down. Richard was livid. He stormed out of the tent, swearing that he would empty some saddles today. At which point Philip legged it, leaving Vaudreuil in Richard's hands. But in point of fact, Philip was destroying and abandoning other castles in this way at the same time. Castles that were too isolated and impossible for him to defend. But Philip had made a plan. And as soon as the truce ended, two French attacks were launched. One, a highly successful raid on Dieppe on the coast. Philip seemed to be getting the upper hand and he was looking pretty chipper. And he attacked south to try to recover the land lost to Mercadier. The key to this land was a castle called Isudun. Julie, Philip besieged it and Richard followed. We have a bit of a roller coaster ride here for Philip. First of all, he sees Richard break through his lines with a small force and get into the castle. And actually, Philip feels pretty good about this. What an idiot. He's trapped inside that castle. I'll have him. 
only to find that the rest of Richard's army had moved to surround Philip's position while he concentrated on Richard, and Philip was therefore, in fact, trapped himself. This brought the first period of war to an end. Philip was forced to make peace, and the Peace of Louviers of January 1196 showed massive gains to Richard across all theatres of the war. Maybe nothing was more telling than the fact that the barons who had deserted Richard were now coming back to his side. People could see the way the wind was blowing. But the French managed with some justice to present the whole thing as their victory. After all, they still had the Vexin. And in fact, Richard would not be happy until he had the Vexin back or was in his grave. Unfortunately, it was to prove to be the latter. The flashpoint of the second stage of the war was to come back and haunt John many years later. Since Henry II's time, Brittany had been a reluctant part of the Angevin Empire. But you'll remember that the heiress Constance had been married to Henry's son Geoffrey, and born a son there, Arthur, a few months after Geoffrey's death. In 1188, at the age of 27, Constance was married to Ranulph of Chester, presumably in an attempt to tie Constance into the Angevin Empire. Sadly, it didn't work. Constance and Ranulph just didn't get on. Ranulph stayed in England, Constance in Brittany, and they didn't even get to meet over the cornflakes. An unfortunate chain of events then led to Richard getting embroiled in all of this. He summoned Constance to attend his court. Ranulph clearly wanted to see Constance over his cornflakes because he ambushed her and whipped her off to England. But Constance and Brittany clearly thought that Richard was in cahoots with Ranulph and had arranged the whole thing. Brittany rose in revolt and sympathy. The revolt was quickly, ruthlessly and efficiently crushed by Richard, but the nine-year-old Arthur had escaped to France and was living at the French court. Constance herself was released in 1198 and got an annulment of her marriage, which seems fair enough, but the words she whispered into her son's ears were not to be complimentary to the Angevins. By giving refuge to Arthur at his court, Philip was pretty much declaring war. And in July 1196, the war was back on already, and wasn't going well initially for Richard. Philip launched an attack on Omal in northeast Normandy. This was a vital area, surrounded by Philip's allies such as the Count of Flanders, and its relief was essential. But this time, Richard's attempt to relieve the castle failed, and Omal fell. Richard himself was wounded by a crossbow, and took little action for the rest of the year. Philip then took other castles, and in fact the only bright spot was, remarkably, provided by John, who won something, and showed a flash of military capability by capturing the castle of Gamache in the Vexin. But from that point on, until the final truce at the Christmas of 1198, the direction of the war flowed slowly, but pretty remorselessly, in Richard's direction. He won the diplomatic war as well. In 1196, he made peace with Raymond of Toulouse, a seismic change since the Dukes of Aquitaine and Toulouse had been hammering away at each other for decades. In 1197, the Count of Flanders came back to Richard's side and his defection brought also a prile of North Norman marcher lords back into the Richard camp. And then, in 1198, the biggest coup came when Richard was able to get his cousin Otto elected as Holy Roman Emperor on the death of Henry VI. And to complete the set, the Count of Boulogne came back to the Angevin allegiance in 1198, and once again this major defection brought a gaggle of more minor lords with it. Militarily, it's a period again of siege and counter-siege, and absolutely focused on Normandy and the Vexin. But Philip's clearly losing slowly. 
and the encounters that do come down to us usually seem to go one way. Richard at this stage created the massively expensive Chateau Gaillard at the cost of £12,000 in just one year. Chateau Gaillard was essentially a massive forward arsenal around which all the Norman military operation was built. Richard was in a hurry and the speed of the castle's construction was quite exceptional. Roger of Hoveden recounts a rainfall of blood during the building. And a website I was on really made me laugh when it described this as traditionally a bad sign, which I'd have thought was yet reasonably obvious. Anyway, Roger reflects Richard's drive and urgency when he then wrote, The king was not moved by this to slacken one whit the pace of work, in which he took such clean pleasure that, unless I'm mistaken, even if an angel had descended from heaven to urge its abandonment, he would have been roundly cursed. Then, in the 1197 campaign, Philip's army was skilfully trapped by Baldwin. Baldwin of Flanders retreated in front of Philip, destroying bridges as he went, and suddenly Philip realised that he was completely trapped, and he was forced to agree to a truce. In early September 1198, Philip's rearguard was severely mauled by Richard, and then in late September, Richard captured the fortress of Dongu and attacked the fortress of Corsell. Philip was moving north through the area with his army, but wasn't aware that the siege of Cassel was going on, when Richard, who was personally out on patrol as per normal, spotted the army. Desperate not to let the opportunity go, outnumbered though he was, Richard attacked anyway. According to the chroniclers, Richard attacked like a starving lion attacks its prey. Philip took one look at the starving lion and ran like a hare for the closest castle, in this case, Shizor. Richard's letter takes up the story. We so pressed them to the gate of Gisors that the bridge broke beneath them, and the king of France, as we hear, drank of the river. With our own lance we laid low Matthew de Montmorency and Alan de Roussy and Folk de Gilverau. Mercadier also took thirty knights whom we've not seen. It is not our might, but God's and the justice of our cause which triumphed. It's this battle, as it happens, where Richard uttered the battle cry, Dieu est mon droit, God and my right. A few centuries later, Henry V would make this the motto of the English monarchy. But truth be told, this was a minor reverse for Philip. He'd lost some men, drunk some grotty moat water, which can't have been much fun, but nothing fundamental was broken. But the whole flow of the thing was against him. Enter Peter of Capua, the papal legate to patch up an agreement. An oily, over-humble man, with skin as yellow as a stork's foot, apparently. Peter clearly irritated Richard. But basically, Philip was offering to give up pretty much everything, except she saw. Richard played disappointed, but a truce was agreed, while a full pace, while a full peace could be hammered out. During the negotiation, Peter of Capua tried to get Richard to release the Bishop of Beauvais, recently captured and, according to Roger of Hoveden, the man Richard hated more than anyone else in the world, a man who had consistently been part of Philip's propaganda campaign. Here's Richard's response to Peter's comment that a bishop shouldn't be held under lock and key. Sir hypocrite, what a fool you are! If you'd not been an envoy, I'd have sent you back with something to show the Pope which he would not forget. Never did the Pope raise a finger to help me when I was in prison and wanted his help to be free. Now he asks me to set free a robber and an incendiary who had never done me anything but harm. Get out of here, sir traitor, liar, trickster, corrupt dealer in churches. 
and never let me see you again. This is a response which gives a fair idea of Richard's attitude to the church. But basically, as he celebrated Christmas and looked forward to the peace negotiations to come, Richard would have felt pretty happy. So that's where we'll leave Richard. Alive, feeling happy, the Angevin Empire safe in his hands. Next week, I suspect he'll begin to think that all this war thing is a bit of a pain in the neck, but we'll see. As ever, thanks everybody for listening, and thanks to everybody who sent in comments, whether on Facebook, iTunes, the website, or by sending me emails. So good luck everybody, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.